not only is it how the legendary marketers and entrepreneurs distinguished themselves, differentiated themselves, were pioneers, were innovators. They explained their innovations in a very purposeful way to create a new place in your brain, to introduce us to new thinking. And the reason it works is because that's how the human brain works. You and I think category first, brand second. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking to Christopher Lockhead. I'm talking to him for two reasons. The first is because he wrote a fantastic book called, with some other authors called Play Bigger. And his contention here is that categories make brands and rather than brands making categories. So what does that mean? Well, he says, if Steve Jobs or Muhammad Ali or any of the big category owners had followed a traditional marketing playbook, they would have failed. And we talk about some brands that have failed to try and launch products into categories as Me Too, like Google+. And we talk about why they didn't work and why Steve Jobs won and why he was able to build multiple categories and own them. And then we talk about Christopher's podcast, Follow Your Different, fantastic podcast. And we get onto a conversation about some of his latest episodes where he's had on the investigative journalist from Forbes, the guy who covers uh, Dan Alexander, the guy who covers President Trump's business dealings. And, and we, chat about, we chat about some of the things that uh, he talks to Dan Alexander on about on his podcast. And we end up with some fantastic book recommendations. A longer than usual episode, full of great conversation. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Christopher Lockhead. And uh, I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. And so with uh, very few options other than manual labor, I started a company. And so for me, entrepreneurship, like many entrepreneurs, is not um, necessarily a way up in the world. It's a way out of a life of struggle. And then uh, um, I started a bunch of companies, ended up being chief marketing officer of three publicly traded companies in Silicon Valley. I was originally born in Canada, moved to uh, California at uh, 27, 28 years old after I sold one of my companies to a uh, U.S.-based enterprise software company. And then after my third tour of duty at a company called Mercury that we sold to HP for about $4.5 billion, making HP my favorite company of all time, um, I decided to hang up my gloves as a CMO. I took a bunch of time off. I did a little bit of consulting, started a small boutique firm, which ultimately led to uh, my first book, um, which is called Play Bigger. And after that book came out, I retired as an advisor. And so today uh, I am a podcaster and a uh, author, and I do a little bit of investing and advising, but not much. I'm trying to, uh, I got a lot of help along the way, Dominic. And so uh, to the degree to which I can, I'm trying to, uh, I, I, one of my favorite expressions is if you're lucky enough to make it to the top of a mountain, you should throw down a rope. So I'm trying to throw down a rope and hopefully have some fun doing it. And, and you're, uh, Christopher, thanks for coming on. The reason you're on is because I listen to your podcast. I'm a great fan. What, what, why, why did you start the podcast? And then maybe why do you still do it? Uh, I started the podcast for three reasons. One, my dear friend, adopted brother from another mother, Colin um, Vincent, was really encouraging me to do so. And he originally started the podcast with me and uh, I'm not sure I would have done it without him, you know? Um, so, so that was one, the support and sort of push of a friend. Um, the other one is 
when when Play Bigger first came out, there was just a lot of inbound response that I was not used to having in my life. It's my first book, and I had no idea what it would be like. And so, um, in in part, the podcast or podcasting now that I have two uh, is a response to a lot of the inbound that was coming as Play Bigger sort of uh, began to take off. And then the third one, and this might be the biggest one, although they're all sort of conjoined in my head. The podcast I wanted to hear wasn't available. And so I became really sort of uh, a super consumer of podcasts, you know, a lot of them, but most business podcasts, as you know, Dom, are horrible. They come sort of in a few flavors, right? The, the, starting with the one I like the least, or I, I, I say I could detest, are the hustle porn stars. And, uh, you know, hustle, 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 and follow your passion, and buy my course, and tweet out a million stupid things a day, and get on TikTok, and wear a thong, and do a dance, and, and don't you wish, you know, you had a plane like this one behind me that's not really my plane, and, you know, those assholes, right? Um, and the there's a, a bunch of things about them that are terrible, but the biggest one is they are selling a bunch of bullshit to particularly young entrepreneurs who have big dreams. And they're sort of uh, telling them if you become the Kim Kardashian of your space, you know, they're influencers. And I think if your goal is to be an influencer, there's something wrong with you. Okay. <laughs> And so I think influencers are assholes. And so influencers that call themselves entrepreneurs selling entrepreneurial influence bullshit, how to Kardashian, Kardashianize yourself. So that's one whole group. By the way, have you ever been on a podcast with one of those characters? No. <laughs> okay, well, here's how it goes. I've been on two and I'm not going back on any of them. I did it early days of my podcast career and I'm embarrassed as hell. But here's how it goes. Before the podcast starts, they're having a normal conversation like you and I are now. And then they do the countdown. And then they go, hey, welcome to the, you know, and they call their, they call their listeners the blah, blah, blah nation. And they, you know, all that stupidity. And, and the, the first time it happened, I thought, hey, what happened to you? You, you just went from a normal person into a moronic, pablomatic carnival barker. Anyway, so that's category one. And then category two is um, these highly produced, highly edited, what most people call interview shows. And the interview is one of the machines that I am raging against. Because here's what most people uh, don't understand about um, in an interview, an interview by design is deeply inauthentic because what an interview is, is a highly trained media, a highly media trained guest with a kitten in the studio <laughs> trying to interfere tremendously <laughs> in my case, a highly media trained guest who's out there selling something of, you know, a book, a company, a IPO, whatever it is they're doing. And they have their three key talking points. And whatever you ask, they're going, they've been taught by the PR folks to, quote, bridge back to the talking points. So that's the first yep. thing. The second thing is you get a professional uh, radio media host type person. And they come in with a pre-configured narrative. And um, so that what, what we experience in an interview is, A, the collision of a pre-configured narrative and talking points. And B, and this is the part that drives me the most crazy, is some producer or editor's interpretation of what we should be allowed to hear. So they take an hour and a half long conversation or a 45 minute conversation and they, they can you hear that? <laughs> He's purring. Hi, buddy. <laughs> and they edit it down to the good bits, you know, just the good bits, just the value bombs and shit. Um, and I think it is presumptuous and insulting that some editor or producer would would figure out of a 45 minute conversation what the 15 minutes of value bombs are. And so um, I think interviews are deeply, deeply inauthentic. And that's why 
uh, I'm a fan of and hopefully a champion of um, the Dialogue podcast, a real conversation. And, and the amazing thing about an authentic Dialogue podcast is in the beginning, you're, it feels like you're eavesdropping on a great conversation. <laughs> okay, buddy, you want down? Um, and then at about the 15-minute mark, after, after you've been eavesdropping for a while, your, your mind plays a trick on you. And it feels like you're listening, like you're in the conversation. And one of the favorite emails that I get is when one of our listeners, Dominic, sends me a note saying, I got to the end of the podcast and I was mad because I wasn't done in the conversation. I had more to get into. And it was like, ah, because you and I, I do this myself with podcasts that I love. You, you fall into, you know, my friend Eric Hunley, for example, his podcast Unstructured is a dialogue podcast. And your brain plays this trick on you and it makes you feel like you're actually not just listening, but in the conversation. And so I think an authentic conversation is the most powerful thing we can have. It's the thing that changes the world when people get together and really pop the hood on an important set of ideas and are willing to roll around and grapple with things. Uh, I think that's how many of us learn. Um, Peter Drucker famously, when asked it towards the end of his career, why he kept speaking and writing, he said, it's the only way I can know what I'm thinking. And so if you're, if you're in the conversation, it allows you and I to do a dance and play with ideas and open each other up and so forth. And if you're a listener, you have this magical eavesdropping experience that turns into a feeling like you were actually in the conversation as opposed to a bullshit, inauthentic, hacked up and edited interview where we're spoon fed the value bombs and key talking points. And, and, and that's the end. And the thing that drives me the craziest, Dom, I don't know if they use this expression um, in the, uh, in the excited kingdom, but um, here on TV and radio, you hear this all the time. Uh, well, Dom, uh, we're just going to have to leave that here. And then they move on to the next issue. And, you know, that's the other crazy thing is um, podcasting and, of course, writing itself are the only two mediums we have where you don't have to leave it here. You can get into it. There's no time constraint in the podcast. You know, these debates we've had in the United States have been completely insane. And the loser in the debates is the same, the same every time. The American people, because it's a it's a, it's, it's a television problem. Right. In a podcast, we don't have to say, well, you got two minutes for this. And 30 seconds to respond. Oh, really? You want us to talk about, I don't know, pick a topic, healthcare. And we each get two minutes and 30 seconds to respond. And we're both vying to be the president and the vice president of the fucking United States of America. And that's what, that's how we're going to do this. It's absolutely moronic. And so my point is an authentic dialogue podcast is the only way that you can really get into stuff um, if you're interested in it. And uh, I, I like you. I I think it's the dialogue podcast is uh, well. I started interviewing people on the melting pot because I just I was nosy really. And if I rang them up and said, "Can I talk to you for forty five minutes?" They'd probably say, "Bugger off!" But you say it's for a podcast, and they go, "Oh yeah, no problem. Let's just chat." But uh, the two bits of feedback I've had, which I really liked, was uh, I've had a couple of guests say at the end, I we ended up speaking about something they had no intentions of ever talking about on air in public. Um, but they weren't unhappy about it. It's just, it had never occurred to them before that they would speak about it. And then, and then some of the uh, listeners who say, and just when I was thinking to myself in my head, I'm thinking, I wish you would ask them. You then went and asked them that. And it was just, as you say, in the conversation. Yeah. And so, um, so anyway, those are the podcasts I love. And in the business domain, there were very few authentic dialogue podcasts. And then the other thing for me is, look, I'm interested in a lot of things. And so sometimes we, as the name would suggest, uh, follow your different. Uh, sometimes we have the world's leading authority on elephants. <laughs> and sometimes we have um, one of the top three most downloaded porn stars of the last five years, Mia Khalifa. Um you know, and we have a lot of authors on who write about life oriented things. Right. So the other thing for me, um, I think we're all 360 degree people and there weren't very many, quote unquote, business podcasts or entrepreneurial podcasts where the host would allow themselves or the, or the team putting it together would allow themselves to say, you know what? 
this is really cool. Let's have NBA legend Bill Walton on just because. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we've been called the uh, the biggest box full of chocolates on the Internet. <laughs> so, you know, there's a little bit of a um, if you're willing to walk on the load, the, the load rest traveled. Yeah. The road less traveled with, <laughs> with me. Then, uh, you know, sometimes we'll talk about more than just business things. Yeah. Well, or, or looking across other, you know, looking for inspiration elsewhere. You had on General Stanley McChrystal and. Um, and and you've had other a whole range of amazing amazing guests. Um, but your uh, you said earlier that you were thrown out of school for being dumb. I mean, you're obviously not dumb. So you must have been thrown out of school for something. Oh, maybe you just stopped going, um, <laughs> and you were very wise. But you, as you said, you ended up writing a book, which was sort of the precursor to the podcast, and that that sort of uh, you you. You, you were talking about creating a category in Play Bigger, and and you've become the category guy. You know, you've created a category for yourself by by writing the book. Maybe we could uh, just enlighten the listeners on, you know, what's at the what's the essence of that? It, it why is, is it important? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a couple ways into this conversation that are powerful, but um, maybe let's start here. Um, I reject, um, the fundamental premise of marketing because here's the problem. When most people say marketing, there's a gigantic, uh, implied assumption that is never discussed, uh, that is never questioned, that is never debated, that is never even considered as not the strategy. It's, it's so implied. It's a given. It's an is like is oxygen. You and I wake up in the morning and we don't have to think about, well, is, will there be oxygen? We wake up, well, fucking hey, there's oxygen. We're breathing today. Right. It's just, it's a given. And when, if you and I go say, Hey, we want to go, uh, go for a hike or, or go have dinner or whatever. We don't have to say, Hey, will there be oxygen? It's going to be there. Right. It's implied. It's assumed. So this is the giant marketing assumption that nobody ever questions that's assumed that it turns out is completely fucking wrong. And here's the assumption. When we say marketing, what we mean is we're going to launch a new product or service or company for that matter. And what we're doing here is we're launching it into an existing marketplace. And we are going to compete and um, and what we're up to is winning a game of capturing demand so that we gain market share that leads to revenue, margins and profitability. And the way we're going to do that is the conversation we're going to have the world uh, with the world is our carbodingulator is better than their carbodingulator. And when you see our carbodingulator, you're going to stop buying theirs and you're going to buy ours. And so that is all of those things are the implied contextual assumption that given like oxygen is given when somebody says marketing, even I would argue when somebody says entrepreneurship. Well, that's not how any of the legends did it, not a one. And so what this begins to tease out, Dominic, is the distinction between capturing demand and creating demand between playing a replacement game and a creation game. And so here's what the legends do. When you're playing the traditional marketing game, we're better than them. By definition, it's a comparison game that you're playing. As a matter of fact, in marketing, there are idiots who invite the comparison, right? You can compare our, our plums to anybody else's plums and we got the best plums in town. As a matter of fact, the minute we say we're the best, you know how the unspoken is often louder than the spoken. So when we say we have the best coffee in town, well, as compared to what? All the other coffee shops? 
So the point of reference is the competition. When we say we're better or best, we are framing, we are grounding the conversation in a comparison to somebody else. Well, here's what I know. Henry Ford did not want his innovation compared to anyone else. Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, did not call it a girdle 2.0. What did she say? She said it's a new invention. It's a new category called shapewear. Now listen, I don't know, maybe slightly after Adam and Eve, people started to create clothing to tuck in certain parts and make other certain parts look better and and so forth and so on. And there's been feet binding and, you know, there's been human beings have been doing shit to their body with clothes to make them look different for a long time. Right. She said it was a new invention. It was a new category. And she is the the most wealthy, self-made entrepreneurial woman in American history. The founder of Spanx, Sarah Blakely, Steve Jobs. He ignored the fact that the BlackBerry existed. He's made the whole world think that he created the mobile phone. When in point of fact, he created a subcategory called the smartphone via niche down and the smartphone overtook the mobile phone. And in doing so, he redefined, he recreated the definition of what a mobile phone was. And we can go through the specifics if you like. And he did it intentionally. He did it again when he introduced the iPad. He, there's, if you go on YouTube, you can watch it. He has a slide where he's got the iPhone and the MacBook on either slide. And he says, and now we'd like to introduce you to a whole new category of device called the iPad. And, and what he was saying was, hey, don't buy two things from us, buy three. And one doesn't cannibalize the other. They're each purpose built to solve a different, and I use that word on purpose, problem. And so if you begin to do the research, and I promise I'll take a breath here in a second, (laughs) what you will understand is the most legendary people did not compete for market share with a better strategy. What they did was they introduced the world to a new way of thinking about a problem and a solution in a way that opened them up to a new approach. And in so doing, they created a whole new market category. And that's what mark, uh, that's what category design is. We're designing how people think um, and we're doing it intentionally. And when you do that, you create demand where there wasn't any before. And if you're the company or the person introducing people to a new way of thinking, by definition, they think you're the leader or what we often call the category queen or the category king. And so, well, it, go, go ahead. I, I, well, I was just thinking um, that if you t- if I take I don't know the the iPhone, the iPod, and the iPad, and I was just I, as you were thinking, I was just thinking about George Moore's sort of uh, diffusion curve, and I was thinking what they didn't do is they didn't join the early adopters. You know, take the iPod, right? There were lots of MP3 players, but they were quite geeky, and you had to strip CDs and da 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 da. And they didn't they didn't say, "Oh, that's the category. We're going to win that." They they jumped straight into the early adopt the the the, the late adopter and said, "Because that product is always different from the early adopter." And they went. They didn't come in and say, oh, "This is a better MP3 player. It's a thousand songs in your pocket." For people who'd never thought about ever buying an MP3 player before, yes, and and, it, and just ignore and just ignored that part of the market, yes. And I'm a huge fan of Jeffrey Moore. I think his book, Crossing the Chasm, was a seminal book and still is a seminal book and should be required reading. Um, However, with that said, no, and I I don't mean this critically. I admire him tremendously, although he doesn't like me at all. (laughs) (laughs) But I think he's a genius and I'm deeply appreciative of his contributions uh, in total, but particularly Crossing the Chasm. Well, here's what happened in the tech world, and it's bleed, it bled out to the rest of the business world over time, which is Crossing the Chasm took off. And then there was another book called Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, also a legendary book. However, and I don't know that the authors intended this. I don't think they did, but I don't know. I've, I never got a chance to ask Clayton. And uh, like I said, <laughs> Jeff's not a fan. 
But here was the, I, I think, an unintended co- consequence, Dominic, which is it reinforced one of the biggest falsehoods in the tech industry and, frankly, in business, which is what makes a company successful is a breakthrough or a legendary product. And so there's an implication in both books that what drives success is quote unquote innovation or what drives you to cross the chasm is that customers get the value of the product and it begins to accelerate. Right. And um, that is while that does happen, it's wrong. It's the wrong conclusion. Are you you saying the product, in the that wins in the early adopters doesn't win later and it's a different product that wins later. No, what I'm saying is the A, the best product doesn't win, and B, a legendary new product on its own will not will likely not design a category by itself. It it needs help. And here's my proof. What's the most innovative product ever created in human history? printing press i i would agree it's up there i would say there's there's one that comes quite a bit before that that is even more important oh writing i agree but there's one before that (laughs) speech well yeah this one speech probably came before so if you want to call that a product i'll I'll give it to you go on what is it what is it trying to steer you towards is the wheel okay so if you would agree with me, I think it's the most important, but it's certainly, I think most people would agree that it's at least one of the most important. And so um, do you know what the original use case for the wheel was? It's not transportation. Um, grinding stuff, pressing olives, pressing grain. No, the original purpose of it was uh, pottery. Okay. So if you think about throwing, a wheel on throwing, your car, throw, yeah, throw, throwing pots, yeah. If you think about a wheel on your car, do a one eighty and spin it that way, and now all of a sudden, pottery. So that was the original use case. How many years after the invention of the wheel with the use case of pottery did it take for it to turn into a transportation product? Oh, it must be so ridiculous. <laughs> it still seems like you just it's one of those things where you know you'd go back in time and you go can you guys not see this like is this not obvious right right but it took human beings 300 years uh until finally um somebody i don't know male or female but i'm pretty sure sat down with a big bottle of jack daniels and a big bag of mary jane and went hmm if we tilt this thing we might really have something here <laughs> and so my point dom is uh, even the most legendary products can't speak for themselves. Now, sometimes it does happen. Sometimes it does happen. But if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a marketer, why would you leave it up to chance? Why wouldn't you be proactive the way Sarah Blakely was? Why wouldn't you be proactive the way Steve Jobs was? And by the way, it works for small businesses too. One of my favorite uh, uh, small local restaurant chains here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I live in Santa Cruz, California, about an hour and a half from San Francisco and is this uh, four or five locations, uh, something like that, small, small chain. And they solved a problem that nobody ever thought about before. And the problem is how do you eat sushi on the go? See, if you're like me and you like sushi, if you're like me and you're busy and you want to eat sushi on the go, what happens? Well, you go and you pick up sushi in a plastic freaking box and you're in your car, okay, and you're driving, and this box is either on your lap or, in many cases, my wife will be managing the box, swizzling it around with the wasabi and the, and the soy sauce and the chopsticks and trying to feed me the stuff, and then the soy sauce gets all over your face and your shirt, and then the, 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 the sushi roll explodes. And, the you know, so my point is not so much. So they said, hmm. Sushi on the go. No one's ever thought about that. What is the most legendary on the go product? Burritos. 
See, because burritos come in their own uh, to-go wrapping, right? Incredible invention, the burrito. So they said, that's how you solve the sushi on the go problem. And so they are the world's first sushi burrito. (laughs) Okay, that's the category. And the brand, and this is the genius. See, the brand has to be tied to the category. Categories make brands, not the other way around. The entire marketing world has this backwards, and we can get into why even more if you want. So what do they do? Category, sushi burrito, brand, you ready? Sushi burrito. And so they call themselves the original or the first, I can't remember exactly, Sushi Rito, right? Sushi Burrito. And so here's what they didn't do. 99.999% of restaurant owners open their restaurant and they say, here's how we're going to compete, Dom. We're going to have great food. In this case, sushi. We're going to have awesome sushi. It's going to be the freshest. Well, our chefs are going to be the most talented. And we're going to do the awesome, awesome combination. We're going to awesome, legendary sushi. That's job one. Two, we are in a great location. People can people die. It's a great place to drive in. There's parking, outdoor seating, fantastic. We're going to have great servers, incredible service, and we're going to price it right. So we're going to have great food, great location, great experience delivered by great people at a, at a fair price. That's everybody's fucking business strategy. And here's the aha. Legends become legends because they become known for a niche that they own. You and I know who Bob Marley is because he's the category designer of reggae music. We don't know who the seventh greatest reggae artist was. We have no idea. If I say to you, who's the greatest boxer ever? Muhammad Ali. Yeah. He might not be. But he owns the category, doesn't he? Of Correct. Boxers. Most boxers, uh, you know, boxing experts say he wasn't the greatest boxer ever. Doesn't matter. While he was alive, we all said it. And when he died, we sure as hell said it. And today, everybody says it. Right. And we could talk about how he positioned himself as the, as the world's first activist athlete. And so wherever you, if you start to look at this idea of categories create new thinking, typically around problems and solutions. It's the way the mind works. If I say to you, hey, Dom, um, can I get you a beer? What might be the response be? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's where I would start too. And then what I, I likely my question would be, what kind of beer would you like? Oh, I see. Right. Uh, oh, I so thought you were offering the, me a beer, in which case I'm happy to take any beer you want to pass my way. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, in that exchange, there's two category conversations. First of all, I could have said, Dom, would you like a beverage? So the beverage is a mega category that gets broken into subcategories or niches of yeah. which water is one, of which wine is one, of which bubbly water is one, of which beer is one, of which juice is one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then in the category of beer, there are many other subcategories. So if you ask me what kind of beer I like, I'm going to tell you I would like a California IPA, please. Uh-huh. Hard I could to get probably, get one, of the, I probably get one of those for you. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, and so my point is um, – Not only is it how the legendary marketers and uh, entrepreneurs um, uh, distinguished themselves, differentiated themselves, were pioneers, were innovators. They explained their innovations in a very purposeful way to create a new place in your brain, to introduce us to new thinking. And the reason it works is because that's how the human brain works. You and I think category first, brand second. So we've got to have a category. The, the category makes the brand. You've got to have some competitors in your category, though, don't you? Ideally, yes. It's very hard to be in a category of one. So we want to invite competitors over time. And most entrepreneurs and marketers are stupid. And so they will <laughs> rip us off. I was on a call yesterday with a fantastic uh, entrepreneur CEO and his head of sales and marketing. And... We were laughing at how 
ever since they rolled out their new category and brand, that their top three competitors have completely ripped off all of it. The words, the images, all of the category and brand stuff, which we call a point of view, they've copied verbatim because most people don't have an original thought and most people think it's wise to copy the emerging category queen. We'll just barnacle our ass onto that. (laughs) But it's not working for their competitors, I guess. If it's just playing. It, it's company, playing. It's, pl- it's playing into their hands completely. Correct. If you're not the company dev- designing the space, then by definition, you're playing by somebody else's rules. And the minute a successful company that's designed and dominated a category goes out of their category and thinks they can compete on brand, that is to say, we're better than them. They have their ass handed to them. And here's my proof: Google Plus. Google has. Most brand experts say one of the top five, certainly top 10 and most valuable brands in the world. Now, the branding experts and the entrepreneur experts think it's because they A, built a great brand and B, have a great product. Those two things are true. And those two things are very, very important. I am in no way um, saying you shouldn't have a legendary product or brand. However, category makes the brand. The reason you and I know Google is because they dominate a category called search. Now, Facebook starts to emerge. They say, oh, shit, we got to have an answer to that. They launch a Me Too product. It's, it's a direct ripoff. Yeah, it's slightly different the way it looked, blah, blah, but it does essentially the same thing. They spend a gazillion dollars on it, well in excess of a billion dollars, and they call it Google Plus. By the way, when you hear plus after a brand name, that's because the entrepreneur, the CEO, and the CMO don't have a creative bone in their fucking body. Plus, the fuck is plus? But I digress. Google Plus. Well, what happens? Nothing. Exactly. Microsoft, same thing. Steve Ballmer, when the Apple stores start to take off, he says to his team, hey, go look at the Apple stores. Copy the whole thing. And launch Microsoft stores. <laughs> now, have you been to an Apple store, Dom? Yeah, it's busy. Yeah, I've you've been to a Microsoft a micro- store? I've walked, I've walked past one. I just feel sorry for the people who were sitting, used to sit inside them before they closed them down. Yeah, exactly. So when it was still open, and you, you've rightly noted, they don't exist anymore. <laughs> and the reason they don't exist is they looked exactly like Apple stores with one big difference. There was nobody there. You see that all the time. You know, Dell, Dell have tried to launch a whole range of stuff in the past, which they're perfectly capable of manufacturing. They just weren't capable of persuading people to purchase. Well, yeah, look at what's going on with IBM right now. Right now, there are news reports out that say IBM is, uh, I don't know if, they're, if they've committed or they're looking at it, but spinning out their cloud hosting business that competes with AWS. Here's the problem. We'll do a little exercise. You want to do a little psychology exercise with me now? (laughs) Go on, then. Pink unicorns, pink unicorns, pink unicorns. You can think about anything you want. Just don't think about pink unicorns. No pink unicorns. You can think about anything you want. No pink unicorns. Any thought on any topic, it doesn't matter. Just no pink unicorns. What's in your mind? Pink unicorns. Yeah. And so the minute we play a comparison game, the minute we play a we're better than them them game. And most importantly, the minute we try to capture demand that was created by someone else, we're a chump. IBM will not catch AWS. Not going to happen unless AWS has some gigantic F up. But Uh, but lots of that is driven... All, uh, ends up being driven by the brand, you know. Like if L, if a, if there was an LG phone that had that was a technically a better phone than an iPhone, it just it just doesn't Nothing matter to the people. Who, it just it doesn't matter to the people who buy Apple. Well, and it just the reason for it, the reason they love the brand is because the category. See, the definition of the category pre-Apple was was designed by the existing 
category queen at the time, which was a company called RIM Research in Motion with this product called the BlackBerry. And I don't know about you, I love my BlackBerry. And the problem the BlackBerry was solving was um, email on the go with the value out of a phone and a few other things. But it was a email, SMS, and as such, as I'm sure you remember, it had a tactile keyboard. So when you pressed on it, the F button went down, right? And look, I love my BlackBerry. And to this day, I can't type on a freaking iPhone because I have giant hands. And, and I can't, every time I hit, an, it's terrible. So I have to talk into it. But of course, it gets every third word wrong. And so no matter how I do it, every time I need to go type something of consequence into an iPhone, I want to throw it across the room and I wish I had my BlackBerry. But I digress. That was the definition of a mobile phone at the time. They said, we don't want, we're not doing mobile phone. We're doing smartphone. And we're changing the whole thing. And we're rewriting the spec. We're introducing a new spec called, um, it's a computer in your pocket, called no tactile keyboard glass screen that you can move all over. And you can do all this stuff with it. And you can span things and so forth and so on. Now, most people would say the reason Apple was successful is the iPhone was a better product than the BlackBerry. That's what most people would say. It was innovation. It was innovator's dilemma. BlackBerry couldn't innovate. They didn't read Christensen. And, and Apple innovated. And that's why they won. And that's all from a product lens. Well, guess what? iPhone is a better product than BlackBerry is an interpretation. It's not an absolute. And so how did that interpretation happen? Morons leave that interpretation to chance. Legends proactively design a new category by introducing thinking through this thing we call a point of view. And when the world exists or when the world agrees with you or enough of the world agrees with you about your point of view, then the point of view tips and bam, you have a new category and everyone is compared to you as opposed to you being compared to everyone else. And that's why category design matters. It's the ultimate differentiation. It's the ultimate moat to become known for a niche that you own. Bob Marley, reggae, Muhammad Ali, boxing, uh, AWS, cloud infrastructure, Google search, Facebook, social network, Airbnb, rent your house, et cetera, et cetera. Christopher, that's fantastic. That, I, that was a short answer or a long <laughs> answer to a, to, a, to a short question. I don't think I've already asked you one question, I think. Uh, but I, I was uh, – as I've got you on a roll and you're sitting here, but obviously the listeners can't see that you're wearing a T-shirt that says vote. But you and I were you and I were chatting about your um, what are you putting your efforts into at the moment? And we were chatting about your latest episode uh, on your podcast where you've had the guy from investigative journalist from Forbes. He's done an expose. Is that the best way to describe it? Of, of Trump's book, business yeah. dealings? That, that it's a book that is an expose. It's a blockbuster called White House Inc. And his name is Dan Alexander. And he um, he probably knows more about the Trump organization, Trump's business, um, than anyone outside that organization. He, he likely does. Um, he's the Forbes journalist who covers uh, the president. That's all he does from a business perspective. And he's um, And he's just written this new book called White House Inc. And we just dropped a uh, two-part series with him where we go deep on the president's business, the president's taxes, the state of his business, uh, were he to get reelected, some of the things going on in his business that would happen in his second term, um, the potential conflicts of in interest, or some people say absolute conflicts of interest that he faces. Um, so, yeah, there's this interesting thing in the United States, Dominic, which is um, um, – I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, Donald Trump got 62, 63 million votes in 2016. Hillary, Hillary Clinton got, um, I think, about 3 million more than that 
Uh, in the popular vote, of course, we have this thing here called the Electoral College, which I'm completely against, which we can talk about if you like. Uh, <laughs> absolute insanity in the United States of America. One vote does not equal one vote. Yeah, but I digress. Um, so he wins in the Electoral College, but that's that's how many votes they get. But here's who the real winner is. A candidate called Apathy. A hundred million people in the United States of America in 2016 did not vote. Their ancestors died for that right. Many people, myself included, would argue that voting is the seminal foundational building block to having a country that works, a democratic country, a free country, a, an experiment in self-government. Self-government doesn't work if yourself doesn't fucking vote. And so vote. And, 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 and it's not just the vote for the president. You know, during an election season like this in the United States, as I'm sure you know, the ballot is long and it includes everything from, in our case, who our local county supervisor is going to be. <laughs> right. And that matters. By the way, I spent a lot of time with our county supervisor when COVID first hit to make sure that our county was responding and also to make sure that uh, the citizenry was supporting our government in, in the crisis. So having somebody that matters um, is really important uh, locally. And then it goes all the way up to who's going to be in your state Senate. In, in California's case this time, no, we're not voting for governor, although I wish we were. Um, uh, but many governors are up for re-election, senators, et cetera, state senators. All these things really matter. Uh, the water district, who's going to be on the water board? Well, if you're a local farmer and there's morons on the water board, that's a pro- you know. So the ballot has a lot on it. And then it has a series of what are called propositions or prop for short, where, uh, where um, the, the lawmakers are specifically going to the citizenry saying, we want you to tell us what you'd like us to do on a particular topic. Um, so for example, there's a big prop on the ballot right now about uh, increasing the property taxes on people who own commercial buildings for a long period of time. So imagine you bought a building 15 or 20 years ago, your property tax that you've been paying is based on what you paid for it 20 years ago. And you know there's some laws about how much it's allowed to be increased with cost of living and things along these lines, a couple percentage points, et cetera. Well, now there's a new law or there's a new prop on the ballot that says the government will be allowed to take your tax basis that was granted to you when you bought it 20 years ago and bring you up to speed now. Well, guess what? There's been an exponential increase in the cost of uh, real estate in California, by way of example. That would destroy many small businesses just because of the taxes. So we got to vote on that shit. If you don't vote and the idiots vote and they destroy small businesses, that's a bad thing. And so my point is, whether whether it's at the presidential level or all the way down to the local level and in between, um, the most patriotic thing that any citizen can do of any free country is vote. Yeah. Well, some Australia have made it compulsory. So some countries make it you get fined if you don't vote. Is that would that be okay? Uh, that would never work in the United States. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard anything about about the politicist politicalization, uh, if I'm saying that properly, the of, of the mask. To the best of my knowledge, the United States of America is the only country in the world where wearing a mask is a political statement. Yes. So yes. yeah, well, if you I mean, try, that, if, whenever the government tries to tell Americans to do things, they don't like it, including vote. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds too socialist or sounds too something anyway. Yeah, exactly. So what was the only socialist vote? (laughs) Taking you back to to those last two episodes, I just, I just occurred to me, what was the biggest myth that you had in, what was the biggest thing that you had in your mind that, that was overturned in that, in that, in those two episodes? Um, a whole bunch of things, actually. Um, one was, I always wondered, is he really a billionaire? Now, I, I know, you know, Forbes does the Forbes 400 list. This is how this starts. And Trump's been on the list since they started it uh, over 20 years ago. So they've done a lot of reporting on him and a lot of detail. So I would know that they would know. but And, and they've been calling him a billionaire for a while. But I always wondered, 
if you pressure tested that, um, how true would it be? Because he's uh, he's given to some hyperbole, if you've noticed. Um, and so it turns out he absolutely is a billionaire. Um, he's got approximately, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so excuse me if I'm a little bit off, but he's got approximately uh, $3.6 in assets, and he owes approximately $1.1 billion. Uh, so he's $1.1 in debt. And so I, if I'm remembering right, and you'll excuse me if I'm off a little, but I'm, yeah. I'm very close. He's he, he's worth about uh, $2.5 billion U.S. dollars uh, after his debt. And according to Dan, um, he's got about $160 million uh, in cash. And so there's absolutely no question he's a billionaire. Uh, so that was the first one that sort of I think was an important one to kind of flatten. And then a million other interesting things uh, along the way. Um, one of them that's probably very concerning, he contributed approximately 50 or $60 million to his first campaign in 2016. Um, guess how much, Dom, he's contributed to his uh, 2020 campaign? Zero. Zero. Yeah. He's, he's about other people's money. Well, I try not to, you know, sort of put motivation on it. I just try to stay factual on what Dan's reporting is. And here's Dan's synthesis of it. He is, he's been under audit from the IRS for quite some time. Um, as, as I know you saw, the New York Times came out with their blockbuster reporting. And the, the interesting thing is when, when the Times came out with their um, data on his taxes, Dan Alexander at Forbes is one of the few people on planet Earth who could sort of put the now put the whole picture together. He had the business assets, business operations and net worth and the financials around that pretty sussed out as an investigative journalist. And then the Times had the taxes. And so he could really put them together in a powerful way. He wrote a piece on that uh, that people might enjoy that I that I thought was fantastic shortly after the tax data came out. Um, And so here's the aha. He's facing what might be approximately a hundred million dollar uh, tax liability with the IRS. And so what Dan says is that given that potential, um, there's no way with a cash position of 160 million, he, he could or would contribute to his own campaign. And so I find it fascinating that in a campaign that many people are saying, and look, I know a lot of people say this every campaign, but is quote unquote, the most important of our time. It's certainly one of the most hotly contested. You know, if you compare this campaign to say Romney versus Obama, (laughs) you know, two dudes wearing khaki pants talking about policy, um, as opposed to what we have going on now, which is some uh, Hunter S. Thompson, LSD inspired (laughs) Kafka movie. I don't know what the fuck we're watching. Uh, but it certainly is high on the different scale. And so um, I find it fascinating that um, um, he's not contributed to his own campaign. And I understand why, uh, but I do find it fascinating and, and somewhat troubling. Um, just to change gears slightly, what is it that you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, of course, there's a million things. Um <laughs> Not with a sense of regret, but is there a, is there a, in there, is there a big one where you go, ah, that would have been great if. No, I don't have any, I don't have a regret. Uh, I'm not that kind of person. Um, there, there are things I, I'm sorry for, for sure. Ah, okay. The things I wish uh, um, I didn't do or weren't true or things that I would do differently today, for sure. But I don't regret them, you know. Um, is there a piece of knowledge that you've got that you think? You, you wish you'd stumbled something you now know to be true that you wish you'd realized was true earlier? I think maybe the biggest, the, the first thing that comes to mind, so that's the one I'll go to because it came, it came naturally when you asked the question is um, I would be uh, more civic and uh, not civilized, civic. I would be more engaged with our community in our country, in our world, uh, beyond just generally trying to be a good person and writing checks. I would, I would carve out time like I now have in my life in addition to writing checks. 
uh, I would have made not just philanthropy, but uh, giving back in all sorts of ways. What today we call double bottom line or some people call triple bottom line. Some people call it conscious capitalism. I would have made the world around me a, a more centering part of my businesses and, 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 and business life as opposed to the paradigm that I was operating on, which is, hey, man, go build your career. Uh, when I first started to have some success and make some money, I started supporting charities that I believed in. And so I've done that. I'm proud of myself for that pretty much from the first time I started to make money. But um, I, I didn't engage as deeply as I would have in um, issues that I think matter, whether they were uh, issues that some people might call political or environmental or injustice. Um, you know, I think I think one of the things that we've learned this year is um, I'll speak for myself. I, I didn't know it was that bad for my friends of color. And I have friends of color. I have my whole life. Uh, lots of black and brown friends, um, dear friends, people I consider brothers and sisters from another mother, or one of my best friends in the world. Anyway, um, and so I I didn't know it sucked as badly for them in the United States. I didn't grow up in the United States. I grew up in Canada, um, but I have lived here for approximately 25 years or so. But um, I didn't know it, was, it sucked as much for them as it sucks. And, and that's just one example. You know, when Me Too happened, I've always worked around lots of women, I was raised by a single mother um, and in the tech industry, there tends to be um, more women in marketing than in some other departments. And so I, I always had women around and I just never thought about it um, that, 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 they, that they might, that there might be a shit show going on for them. And look, I knew there was problems and I knew there was race. I'm not completely ignorant, but I don't think I knew what the Me Too movement taught us. And I sure didn't understand at the level uh, that I think I'm trying to understand today about what it's like to be a brown or black American, what the statistics are like, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so my point is I would be more socially aware as opposed to trying to focus on businesses, trying to create value that way, and then writing checks and sort of not engaging more broadly and sort of what's going on in the world in that sense. Does that make try sense? And do, yeah. Just trying to do some of it all at the same time rather than one as a function of the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some of us grew up at a time where you thought, Hey, you go out there, you build great businesses. Hopefully you cr create employment. Hopefully you deliver massive value to customers and shareholders. You can be proud of yourself for that. In my case, I grew up, you know, certainly not advantaged economically to put it mildly, um, and so trying to achieve uh, economic security for myself and my family, you know, so those objectives. And, and at the time, I think what a lot of us thought was, you know, you go do that stuff, you earn your stripes, you make some money, and then more towards the back end of your career, you know, you start to focus on uh, philanthropy and engagement in the community and certain causes that might matter to you, uh, helping out the next generation, things along those lines. That, that comes later in your career. And I think younger people in business, younger entrepreneurs are saying, no, we can do all of that at the same time. And I, I love that paradigm and, um, and I embrace it wholeheartedly today. And um, they should all, everybody should go and read Play Bigger, definitely, and work out how to be a category king or queen. Um, but what, uh, Christopher, what other books have you picked up along the way that, or maybe you're reading now that you think people should people should have a look at. Well, um, depends where you want to go with the conversation. Is it books now or or, or <laughs> well, it's or it's it's either you, you know, know uh, guy coming it, up or it, what whatever you think you know, sort of a few suggestions from you that would be most impactful on the listeners. Well, um, uh, Bill Walton's book, Back from the Dead, is unbelievable. I don't think I'd probably call it a business book, but Bill Walton's one of the greatest uh, NBA players of all time. He's a living American treasure. The Grateful Dead created the Grateful Dead Fan Hall of Fame for Bill. And Bill is one of the most colorful, engaging, deep-hearted guys who, who has gone through an extraordinary amount of adversity in his life. He was signed to the national, get this, 
when he signed um, to the Portland Trailblazers in the NBA, it was the largest rookie contract ever signed by any professional athlete in the major sports in the United States of America at the time. And he couldn't fucking talk. (laughs) He's a stutterer. And so Bill had to overcome stuttering. He, he had a hard time giving an interview. And today, he is an Emmy award-winning sports broadcaster. So not only is he in the NBA Hall of Fame, he's done incredible things on the court. Um, he's this incredible character. Uh, he's over, And he's had tremendous pain with his body. He has a tremendous disorder that almost ended his career. He, was, he spent most of his career not playing. A lot of people think had he been able to play uh, full-time, you know, he would have been in the same class as a Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Regardless, he's an American treasure, and I've gotten to know him a little bit, and I just love him. And his book, Back from the Dead, is, is a great read. Fantastic. Um, you know, we talked a lot about Dan Alexander. I think his insight into the into the White House is really powerful. Um, and so um, White House, Inc. is a great book that's certainly timely. Let me tell you about, I'm just going to grab the name of her book so I don't get it wrong. Um, we're dropping an episode very soon here with a gal named Annie Duke. And Annie Duke is the Michael Jordan of poker. And um, her background is incredible. Let's see. Her book's called How to Decide. It's just coming out now. How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And Annie has got an incredible education. She's made millions of dollars as a poker player. Um, and she's just an absolutely fascinating uh, human being. So that's a brand new book. Uh, a while back, here, I'll show you this one. We had a guy on the podcast. His name is Buster Benson. He wrote huh. this book right here called Why Are We Yelling? And it might be one of the most important books. Um, he said it's called, subtitled The Art of Productive disagreement. And so he sort of lays a case for why screaming at each other like a bunch of morons isn't what we want to do. And, <laughs> and, and that having a uh, discourse, having a dialogue where there's natural push and pull, but we're committed to a dialogue. We're committed to learning. We're not committed to fighting. We're not. Most people think when they have a conversation, um, my job is to win. My job is to get you to think what I think. Well, that's what idiots think about conversations. What smart people, I think, think about conversations is a a conversation. Conversation is a great way to get to know somebody, to relate, to learn about what they know, maybe their area of expertise, maybe their experiences, maybe they're interesting, maybe there's something for you to learn, maybe they're just fucking funny. But and on a you know you took take it from a political point of view. We have to learn how to disagree from a business point of view. One of the most powerful skills, Dom, is the ability to disagree and commit. Oh, yeah. One of of Jeff Bezos's leadership lessons, disagree and commit. And I always believed when I was an executive and an entrepreneur that if you and I were together in a company, we were on the board, we were executives, we were software developers, we were salespeople, whatever we were, you and I are working together. We got to decide something. And let's say we vehemently disagree. Well, smart people disagree in private. So let's have it out and let's, let's, let's get to it and let's get to it with a level of precision, not at the soundbite high level. You know, I had this situation happen with a head of engineering about a year ago and And he was upset about what we were about to go do from a category point of view. It was a company I was advising. So I sat down with him and let's just call him Jimmy. And I said, okay, Jimmy, you don't like this new thing. No, I hate it. Okay. Why? He said, well, and I said, well, why about that? There's a technique. Some people say use five whys. Some people say use seven whys, but let's get underneath it. And then, and so finally I understood what his objection was. So I said, and then I played it back to him. So Jimmy, I just want to make sure I got it. And I played it back to him. He said, yeah, that's right. And so A, he didn't like the words. He just didn't like them. And B, he thought we came to the category conclusion 
on a, uh, a false understanding of their products and their product strategy going forward. So I said, okay, can I share with you what I think is our understanding of the products and the product strategy that got us to the answer that you don't like? Because now what I want to understand is, was our process flawed or do you just think our answer is flawed? So we unpacked that. And we got to a place where he agreed that we had run a thorough process. We did understand the product strategy. He just didn't like the answer. Okay, That's great. a different thing. So let's argue about the answer, which is what we did. My point is, and this is why I love Buster's book, uh, Why Are We Yelling? Authentic dialogue takes place that way. This head of engineering and I respect each other deeply. We were probably irritated with each other, I'm sure. But we tried to take a professional approach. So this, I, I think we need more dialogue. And so I love, I love Buster's book. Um, I love Peter Senge's book that introduces the, this concept of dialogue. Uh, the book's called The Fifth um, Discipline, okay. uh, cre- about creating learning organizations. And he says one of the foundations of a learning organization is the ability to have these dialogues. So those are a couple. Fantastic. That's, uh, that's a fantastic selection. Um, Christopher, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today. Dom, thank you so much. Stay legendary, my friend. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.